In Parshas Mishpatim, the discussion of Eved Ivri, which is a Jewish slave, a limited type of slavery. We have Amma Ivriya, which is a Jewish maidservant who is sold into slavery by her father for also a limited period. Both of them are for a period of six years. The girl does not have any extension possibility. The man can potentially, if he so chooses, extend his slavery to the Yovel, to the Jubilee year, if he is happy and the master is happy. If he says, I love this gig, I want to stay here, and the master says, he drives me crazy. So he cannot force his, himself on the master and keep his job. If the master wants to get rid of him, then the master has a right to veto. But the potential of increased servitude is also limited by the Evet Ivri to the Oval, the Jubilee year. There's also a, a type of slavery that is more akin to slavery in the common vernacular sense, what's called Eved Kenani, a Canaanite slave, which is kind of an irony in terms of the term, because one is not permitted to have a Canaanite slave. The Torah says the seven Canaanite nations are not allowed to be preserved. We were required to go to war against them unless they accepted the seven laws of Noah, which historically was not what happened. The only large group of Canaanites that went peacefully and evacuated from the land of Israel were the Girgashi that moved to Africa. And in reward for that, the land of Israel is eternally also known as the land of Canaan. In reward for that, so they evacuated and recognized God's gift to the Jewish people, and they had the land of Israel called after them as a, an honorary title for them. The other group of Canaanites that were preserved were the, the group called Givonim, the Gibbonites, which deceived Joshua and claimed they weren't Canaanites. But in general, the other seven Canaanite nations were meant to be obliterated if they did not accept the seven laws of Noah, as the Yerushalmi says, or the sovereignty of the Jewish nation over the land of Israel. Without those two, there would need to be war, and a full-out war without prisoners. No, no prisoners to be taken. The Torah says, brutally, lo kol neshama, do not allow a soul to live from the Canaanites if it comes to war. You should first make an overture of peace. If you can't, they don't want to have peace with you. They don't want to accept the seven laws of Noah. They don't want to accept the Jewish sovereignty over the land of Israel. Then you must engage in full war. No treaties. No uh, acceptance of their presence within the land of Israel. So the idea of a Canaanite slave is a misnomer because we're not allowed to have a Canaanite slave. A Canaanite slave is by definition something that should never exist. And in fact, the term is just kind of a borrowed term because a, a non-Jewish slave who decides to become a slave, wants to sell himself, or if he was captured in battle in a, a, as a member not of the Canaanites, uh, some other nation, 
or non-Jewish warring nations that uh, captured slaves in, in the process and sold that slave, if that person wants to become a Jewish slave, they can. They have to have a, a rotsun to do so. They have to be willing to do so. And the process requires for a man, mila and tevila, and for a woman, tevila. So it's parallel to gerus. It is like a quasi-conversion process. And they both will be obligated in mitzvot through that, like a Jewish woman. So the, that's the Gemara Chagiga, Daftalad Aleph, that a Eved, a non-Jewish slave who has basically done a quasi-conversion, is obligated in mitzvot like a Jewish woman, with rare exceptions like uh, gender-specific laws. For example, a Jewish woman has no prohibition to shave the corners of her face with a razor. That's not the beard the Torah is talking about. But this slave is prohibited, the five prohibitions, to shave the corners of his face with a razor. So generally speaking, they're almost identical with minor differences. For example, the, the Isra of Ta'ar on Asazokin. So, except for the prohibition of shaving with a razor at the corners of the face, uh, of the beard. So, the actual status of the Evid Kanani, of the, the classic slave, is parallel to slavery that we see elsewhere in the world. All of his labor is owned by the master. His progeny are born in to the status of slavery. To be more precise, within Jewish law, you have to know who the parents are. It goes actually after the mother. So if the mother is a shifcha kenanis, a non-Jewish slave woman, then it becomes, the child progeny will become a vodim. So you, you look at the mother for that status as well. And they're quasi-Jews. And their labor is entirely owned by the master. And that continues for generations. There's no limit on that. It's not indentured servitude like what happens by an, a Jewish slave or a Jewish slave woman where there's a maximum period, six years or potentially till the Jubilee year, but there is definitely an end to it by Evid Kenani. It says, The Torah says you shall uh, work them eternally. There, there is no necessary end to that period of bondage. So, what's fascinating about this is that although, of course, today, slavery is pretty much uh, an academic point, there's very seldom a practical application of slavery. We do have that rare circumstance where slavery is relevant. Rav Moshe Feinstein has a tshuva about it, that the Gemara in the end of Kedushin discusses how to help a mamzer out. As we were talking about earlier, how do you help a mamzer out? He is not interested in propagating this stigma to his descendants. So the Gemara presents a way out for the mamzer. Find a girl who's looking to convert, and if they're agreeable, so instead of her converting, have her go to mikvah, become, instead of Jewish, a shifcha kenanis, become a slave. So if she becomes a slave, the children will be slaves, 
And then, when he frees those children, and his wife presumably, that would probably be a nice thing to do if he actually comes to it, then the stigma of Mamzerus will cease. And there'll be one big happy family, and they will be able to marry whoever they want. The children will not be stuck looking only for other Mamzerim, and not allowed to enter and marry into the Jewish people, not being able, you know, they don't want to have to propagate this stigma further. So this is a good way out, and Rav Moshe Feinstein says that it's permitted and it works, even in America today. Even though slavery is illegal, and this is, in fact, creating a circumstance of slavery, Rav Moshe says that's not the slavery that was outlawed in America. The slavery that's outlawed in America is talking about forced labor, and this is clearly a halachic way around the stigma of mamzerus. So this is not human trafficking of any kind whatsoever. And he says this is not a violation of dina de malchusadina. He says it's permitted to do. You don't have to go to Sudan to, to do the uh, process of making her into a shifcha kananis. You can do it here in the U.S. of A. That's Rav Moshe's chuba. So except for those rare exceptions, shifcha kananis and Eved Kenani are both very rare, but looking forward into the future of the Messianic era, things get interesting. Let's take a look. The Gemara Shabbos, Lamed Beis, yeah. Shifcha Kananis? Shifcha. 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 Yeah, how, how does that... I mean, explain how it looks in, in biblical times. In modern times, it will look very similar to a conversion. For the man, it requires circumcision, followed by, after he heals, followed by an immersion in a mikvah. For the woman, it just entails immersion. Both have, like the conversion process, and need to accept the mitzvahs. If they say, I don't want to accept the mitzvahs, you cannot make them into avadim. In order to create the status, they must have an acceptance of mitzvahs, like all a convert. No, not all 613. Just the negative commandments and the positive commandments that uh, both that apply to Jewish women. So that the Gemar Chagiga Davdalid says that the, the template of what applies to Jewish slaves is the same level as what apply, applies to Jewish women. There, there's a, a parallel plan. So, mitzvahs asesh has man groma, positive time-bound commandments, generally speaking, are a, an exception. They're exempt from those, just like a Jewish woman. So, you know, when a Jewish woman has an obligation for time-bound positive commands, then they'll also be obligated in, in those time-bound commands that are positive, like for example, eating matzah on Pesach. Jewish woman is obligated. There's a drasha that includes a Jewish woman in spite of it being positive time bound. So too, a slave will have the same halacha. So it's the same template. What applies to a Jewish woman applies to a non-Jewish slave that converts quasi to become an either Evid Kenani or Shifcha Kenanis. Mm-hmm. So, so it's possible today. It's rare today. 
But looking forward into the future, is this going to gain traction? It would appear that it will. So take a look at the Gemara in Shabbos, Lamed Beis, Amid Beis. And the Gemara quotes a pasuk in Zechariah, Cheschaf Gimel. So the prophecy of Zechariah Hanavi, chapter 8, verse 23. Ko amah Adonai Tzavos bayom emahema, referring to the Messianic era, in those days. Asher yachaziku asara anoshim, mikol hashanasagayim. When ten men shall grab on from all the nations, all the various languages, vechaziku b'chnaf ish yehudi, and grab on to the cloak, the corner of a garment of a Jewish man. Lamor saying, we want to go with you. Because we have heard that God is with you. That's the verse. How does the Talmud interpret this verse about the Messianic era? So Rosh Lakish, Amr Rosh Lakish, Kol all who are meticulous in the fulfillment of the mitzvah of tzitzis, wearing a talis, Zoche merits umeshamshin lo, and has the service of beis alofim vechesmei asavodim, twenty eight hundred slaves. Shenema, as it states in the verse we just read, koamar adonai tzavos bayomim ahema asher yachziku asar anoshim kol shanasagayim yachziku bechnaf ish yehudi lemo neilchem achem. So this verse is interpreted as twenty eight hundred members of. Humanity, non-Jewish people, that grab on to his tzitzis and say, we want to enter into a, an agreement where we become your slaves. This is the Messianic era. So make sure that your tzitzis are in good working order. And the surprise is, how does this make sense? Why in the world? Right? The Messianic era foretells an era when humanity reaches the intimacy with God that we were intended to. And this is not just for the Jewish people. This is for all peoples. As the prophet Yoel says, God will place his spirit over all flesh. Prophecy will become the native, natural experience for humanity, Jew and non-Jew alike. Medrash Nyalkit Shimoni says, prophecy is given not based on caste or rank. It depends on the person. The, the merits of the person are what determine it. The, the Medrash says whether man or woman, Jew or non-Jew, slave or maidservant, everybody can achieve prophecy. So yes, everybody can achieve prophecy. And in fact, that is the messianic vision that humanity will move in that direction. But how does slavery fit into this picture? Why would this be somehow a benefit for humanity? It seems almost like a step in the wrong direction. Right? The, the idea that this somehow fits into the height of human potential with what seems to be this, the limitation, the subjugation of parts of humanity, it is hard to understand. So first we have to understand that from a Jewish perspective, slavery does not carry the same stigma 
that it carries in most other cultures as an almost subhuman rank. And that, that has nothing to do with the Jewish perspective. If you look at a classical case, who is the quintessential classical slave? Is Eliezer Eved Avraham. Eliezer is the slave of Avraham. He is a trusted right-hand man. In fact, our sages teach us that he was a Rosh Hashiva, who was Dola Umash Gimitaras Rabbo. He would draw forth the teaching of his master, Avraham Avinu, our, our patriarch, Abraham, and teach the masses from his Torah. So we're not talking about a schlepper. We're not talking about somebody who's subhuman. He's a, a wonderful and, and uh, integral role in the household of Abram and the, the mission of bringing humanity to God, this was something that Eliezer fully participated in. And we find that he's so widely accepted within the Jewish world that through all the generations, Eliezer is a Jewish name. It is not off, out of bounds as though, oh, a slave. How could we name somebody after a slave? No, not at all. Eliezer is considered fully integrated and accepted and honored within the Jewish tradition in spite of the fact that his labor was owned by Avraham Avinu. Right? That's, that is not a stigma that it re reduces his worth in the eyes of the Jewish people. He was committed to the, the mission of Avraham. And from a Jewish perspective, Eved Melech Melech, the slave of a king, is himself a king. Moshe Rabbeinu, the father of the prophets, what is his epitaph? What is the, the praise given to Moshe? Eved Hashem, the servant of God. From a Jewish perspective, when we value freedom, it's not in the mold of the Western world. It's not in the mold of the founding father based on John Locke. The idea of freedom from a Jewish perspective is not merely freedom for the pursuit of happiness, if you will. But as Moshe said to, to Paro, free my people that they may serve me. It is freedom to devote ourselves entirely to the service of God. That is the value of the freedom. Because man is created to work, not just to be engaged in, in the servitude of his passions, but to serve God. So that is the freedom that we cherish. We are in the service of God. Everybody is in the service of something. That is the endemic. Adam la'amal yumad. We recognize uh, that man was created, was born to toil. That is, a successful human being is a human being that is toiling. Now, a person can choose if they are in a position to what they toil in, and that will obviously impact their measure of success. But man is a toiling creature. So freedom that is valuable for Jewish people is a freedom to be able to serve God. So how does this fit? Yeah. It almost seems like you you can use the terms servant and slave interchangeably, but there is there is a different level of yeah. What what is what is the difference between the two? If there is one, sure. In in the English language, there is definitely a difference. Means somebody who's paid to serve, whereas a slave has no no such rights. Right, so a servant is a reference to the role. He is engaged in serving. Whereas a slave might be engaged in other roles that are not necessarily what you'd expect of a servant, but 
the determination of his labor and the fruits of his labor accrue to the master. The master decides what he should do, and the master accrues the, the fruits of that labor, whereas a servant is somebody who's engaged in a servile role. He may be determining to do that himself, and he may be receiving the benefits and the, the rewards of that as a servant. So the two terms are often used somewhat interchangeably, but there's a world of difference. A slave is one who does not have that freedom to determine how to utilize their labor and does not have the benefit of the accrual of the fruits of that labor. That's, that's a slave, and a Jewish slave as well. And Eved Kanani has those limitations. So how does this fit into the Messianic era? Why would 2,800 people, human beings, approaching the Messianic era, run after a Jewish man to grab onto his tzitzis to say, we want to become your slave. How does that make sense? Why would they do that? Well, these are not necessarily Kanani descendants. They're just Certainly not. From all walks of life. Right, from all the languages, all the different peoples. Right, that's what the, the Pasuk in Zechariah says, and Rish Lokish expounds. So I think it could be understandable if we consider another b'risa in Yevomus Daf Chavdalad Amidbeis, it says as follows: Ein We will not accept converts in the Messianic era. We have a an historical parallel. Lo kiblu They did not accept converts. Not in the days of the, the golden era of the Jewish first commonwealth, in the days of King David or in the days of King Solomon. So the requirements of a ger tzedek, of a righteous convert, it, it, it's something that to legitimately offer that and bring somebody into the Jewish people requires that the judges can know with certainty that they are coming with no ulterior motives. Now that doesn't mean that a conversion that is done without those parameters is an invalid conversion. It doesn't mean that. In fact, the Gemara says there were tens of thousands of converts, at least, in the times of King David and King Solomon. So it's it doesn't mean it can't happen, but it's not called Gertzedek. It's not called a righteous convert. It doesn't mean that the people aren't righteous, but it means the conversion was a, a gray market conversion, if you will. They're Jewish, but you didn't have the, frame, the framework to accept them in a way that there's no, no doubt about their motivation. In the days of King David and King Solomon, to join up to the Jewish people was a no-brainer. You want to move up in the world, you want to have success, prosperity, you want to be in the, in the most advanced kingdom of, of the ancient world in, in the Middle East. So, of course, convert, become Jewish. It was a no-brainer. It had nothing to do with God. It had everything to do with pursuing the ulterior motives of self-enhancement and, and moving ahead. That is not what we want for Gerard Sedek. A Gerard Sedek is somebody that what they yearn for is the relationship with God. And in that environment, the Bezdin, the court, has no way to have certitude, full confidence 
that there are no ulterior motives. So that's why the above-board courts were not accepting converts in the days of King David or King Solomon. And this Brisa says it will be the same in the Messianic era. So in the Messianic era also, it would be a, a simple no-brainer to join the Jewish people. But at that point, in spite of the, the, the general movement of humanity towards the service of God, we, we still, the courts would not be able to determine that that was the sole motivation of a prospective convert. So that avenue of joining the Jewish people would be closed. That's what this Bryce is saying. But what would not be closed? If somebody was driven to enhance their relationship with God as a Ben Noach, they have different options. They can meticulously observe the seven laws of Noah, everything that is incumbent upon them by virtue of the intellect, everything that is incumbent upon them by virtue of their debts of gratitude, for example, to their parents, that's, that's a certain limitation that a Ben Noach will bump up against. Perhaps a little bit more can be achieved for a Ger Toshav. A Ger Toshav is somebody that has, in addition to the seven laws of Noah that they follow, a Ger Toshav has rights to live in the land of Israel, and according to Rashi, a Ger Toshav has to keep Shabbos in a public sense. Because they're a resident in the land of Israel, they can't be revving up, revving up their motorcycle Friday night. They have to, at least in a public sense, keep Shabbos publicly. That's, that's what Rashi seems to say. So yes, there's a bit more for a Ger Toshav. But if somebody is driven even further to connect themselves to God in a manner that God is addressing himself to that individual through command, there's another option that will be available even if conversion is not available, and that would be avdus, becoming an avid kanani or shifcha kananis. That is something that would still be achievable even in the messianic era, because it's not like a regular conversion. There's no concern of a need to potentially dissuade, to, to say, well, why, why do you want to do this? What's pushing you to this? We don't say that for an avid. Somebody's coming to be an avid, they need to be informed of what it entails, and not in all the details, but in a general sense, and to accept it. So, in the Messianic era, we can conceive of those that are thirsting for a greater potential to connect to God through His commands, wanting to become avodim, wanting to, be, to, to accept this limitation of their self-determination and the fruits of their labor in exchange for connecting to God through his commands in a much broader expression of their life, the commands that pertain to a Jewish woman as well. The idea of the Messianic era being a movement of humanity towards a greater intimacy with God, specifically through commands, is something that the Medrash touches upon. Medrash in Pashas Vayechi. Gracious Rabbi, and the blessing of Yaakov, of Jacob, to his sons, and specifically the blessing to Judah, Yehuda is given a blessing that references the Messianic era.
Judah is the progenitor of the kingship, the Davidic dynasty, as well as Melech HaMoshiach, the Messiah. And the Medrash says as follows, The Jewish people do not need the teachings of the Messiah in the future. Shanamar, a love goyim yidrushu, as it says in Isaiah 11:10, to him nations will will he he will be sought out by nations, and he will give exposition of the divine will to nations. Lo Yisrael, but not to the Jewish nation. In Cain, if this is the case, lama melech hamoshiach ba, why does the Messiah come? What's he coming to do? Who asked for that? Why do we need the Messiah? The Medrash asks a, a, a startling question. Why do we need the Messiah? The Medrash says, we don't need him. He's not going to teach us. The Jewish people don't need his teachings. Why is the Messiah going to come? Two things. To facilitate the ingathering of the exiles, that will be a role of Messiah, and to give to the nations 30 commands. So the Brisa, actually, if you look at the Tosefta, at the end of Avodah which in theory we're supposed to be learning tonight, so we're getting back to it, the Brisa and the Mefarshe Brisa reference 30 mitzvos that will be revealed for all the nations of the world in the Messianic era. They're in actually referenced... In addition to the 613? No, no, the 613 are not for the entire world. That's for the Jewish nation. There are seven that we share out of the 613, and actually those seven, it's a bit of a misnomer because those seven are seven categories. There's a whole slew of mitzvos that are subsets of each of those seven. So there's much more overlap than just 7 to 613. But without getting into the nitty-gritty of it, there will be a, an explosion of commands that apply to the non-Jewish world. And the seven categories that we have today will expand to 30. And the, there, it's, it's a Gemara that references the 30 of the Messianic era, and the Tosefta also references it. And this Medrash is saying as well, what is the purpose? How is Mashiach going to come and bring the world to fruition? The Jewish people don't need him. We don't need his teaching. He will facilitate the ingathering of the exiles for the Jewish people, and he will also bring to humanity the fulfillment of the 30 mitzvot up from seven, seven to 30. So it's seven categories, but you're going to have 30 in the Messianic era. So this is going to be a major upgrade for humanity that he is going to, to popularize. As I mentioned, you can see what all 30 are. We, we have in Messeris and what they are. It's not a secret to us that the Torah Shabbat is here. We don't need him to reveal that. But to actually bring it to the nations, that is something that Mashiach is going to do. And that's why he needs to come. Mashiach is, is not just a, a parochial benefit for the Jewish people, but it really is to, to bring humanity 
to its, its purpose, to fruition. So 30 is good, but there may be some individuals that are drawn to even more. And for them, there'll be the option of accepting all the negative commandments that apply to Jewish women and the positive ones that apply to Jewish women as well in the format of accepting avdus, of becoming Ebi Kanani or Shifra Kananis. So that Wuchera is, is the understanding what Rabbi Shimon Melokish is explaining in the Messianic era that there will be this draw to those that say, take, take us with you to be enhanced in the higher level of connect to God through his commands, that would be an, another option through Avdus, which is even more than the default of seven mitzvahs or even the maximal 30, you'd have a, a higher connection than that even through Avdus. The connection specifically to the mitzvah of tzitzis perhaps now can be more intuitive. Why is the draw for these 2,800 autonomous human beings in the Messianic era drawn towards servitude, which is shocking, they're drawn to the tzitzis. The tzitzis are the symbol of the entire Torah. They're an emblem that we wear on, a, on ourselves that remind us of the entire Torah. So these people are drawn to the tzitzis. Those that are passionate about fulfilling mitzvos, about connecting to God through the mitzvos, will be drawn to the tzitzis, which are a symbol of the entire breadth of divine command for the Jewish people. And they want to attach themselves to that to the extent that they are capable of. And in the Messianic era, that would mean to accept avdus. So, so l'chera, that's why dafka tzitzis, of all things, is, is the symbol of their attraction.